Hi friends, Justin Hibbert here. Can I ask a huge favor? If you're blessed by this podcast, if you've learned something from it, if this has been helpful to you, would you do me a huge favor and buy me a cup of coffee? Okay, don't really buy me a cup of coffee, but pretend like every month you're taking me out for a cup of coffee. How do you do this? You become a patron. It's just $5 a month to become a patron. It's the cost of a cup of coffee. It's all I'm asking. If you could be so generous in doing that, it will go a long way in supporting me, this podcast, and some big plans I have for Why Catholic. All you need to do is go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Thank you for your help. God bless you. Have you ever wondered where the term hocus pocus comes from? You might find this really interesting, at least I did. In the traditional Latin mass, the priest says mass facing the high altar with his back to the congregation. This posture is known as ad orientum, as the priest would be facing towards the east. Think of it as though the priest is saying mass on behalf of the congregation rather than saying mass towards the congregation. Because of the form of the Latin Mass, the priest says the ordinary parts of the Mass in a low-speaking voice. The intention isn't to say it so that the congregation hears every word, especially since very few lay people knew Latin anyway. However, if you sit close enough to the front, or the nave is particularly echoey, you can hear the priest, though it might be muddled. During the Latin Mass, when the priest consecrates the bread, he says, Hoc es corpus meum, meaning, this is my body. Because people didn't exactly know the words being said and couldn't clearly hear them, they garbled it into hocus pocus. And because the prayer of consecration marks the moment when the bread changes to the body of Christ, the term hocus pocus became synonymous with some sort of mysterious transformation. Thus today, we've associated hocus pocus with a magician just as they perform an illusion. You might hear a magician say hocus pocus and then do something like pull a rabbit out of his hat. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. We're continuing our series on Catholic ethos, which we began in the last episode, episode 73, on faith-seeking understanding. As a reminder, ethos means the characteristic spirit of a community as manifested in its beliefs. Each of these episodes focus on a particular idea or phrase common in Catholicism. In Catholicism, you will hear the word mystery quite often. For example, at Mass, at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, the priest will say, the mystery of faith, to which the congregation will respond by saying one of the three acclamations. We proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. Or when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. Or save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection you have set us free. The mystery isn't just the Eucharist, the turning of bread and wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. It's the whole process of salvation, the love of God manifested in the incarnation, death, resurrection, and return of the second person of the Trinity. Father John Hardin defines Catholic mystery this way in his modern Catholic dictionary, quote, a divinely revealed truth whose very possibility cannot be rationally conceived before it is revealed, and after revelation, whose inner essence cannot be fully understood by the finite mind. The incomprehensibility of revealed mysteries derives from the fact that they are manifestations of God, who is infinite and therefore beyond the complete grasp of a created intellect. Nevertheless, though incomprehensible, mysteries are intelligible. One of the primary duties of a believer is through prayer, study, and experience to grow in faith. 
that is, to develop an understanding of what God has revealed. End quote. As Father Hardin notes here, when we talk about the idea of mystery in Catholicism, we're not saying that God hides something from us. It's quite the opposite. God reveals it to us. For example, the incarnation, salvation, the Eucharist, the Trinity, marriage, etc. are all mysteries, but they're all things that God has revealed to us through sacred scripture and holy tradition. We can't hide behind something like agnosticism and claim that we just can't know the things of God because God has not revealed them to us. We can't claim ignorance because God has indeed made these mysteries known to us. What we are saying when we use the term mystery is that while God has revealed these mysteries to us, we will never fully understand the mechanics of how they work. We can understand aspects of salvation. I can tell you all about the night I decided to follow Jesus, but I can't tell you all of the events God orchestrated to lead me to that point of saying yes to Jesus. I can tell you that we must be baptized in order to be saved, but I can't tell you exactly how God works through the waters to wash away one's original sin. Mystery means there's a limit to our capability to understand. Another example of Catholic mystery is the rosary. When praying the rosary, depending on the day, one ought to meditate on either the joyful, luminous, sorrowful, or glorious mysteries, all of which are particular moments in the lives of Jesus and his mother, the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Catechism also refers to the Trinity as a mystery, and in Ephesians 5.31-32, Paul says that the union between a husband and a wife, where two become one flesh, is a great mystery. In becoming Catholic, one of the things I noticed is how often the word mystery is used, and how absent that word was from my Protestant experiences. It's like if you want to become Catholic, you need to be comfortable with the idea of mystery. And as I think about it, I think that there is a general discomfort with mystery in Protestantism. At least in my experiences, we wanted to be able to parse and explain everything. For example, growing up, we would have this annual conference for our denomination, and it seemed like every year as a youth or young adult, we would hold these impromptu Bible studies. And every year, the first topic we wanted to discuss was predestination. Does God choose us or do we choose God? The doctrine of predestination is most commonly articulated in the five points of Calvinism, sometimes referred to as the mnemonic TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. It's a very precise and neat formula to explain soteriology or the doctrine of salvation, particularly God's part in predestining us. If you were to remove one of these points, the whole premise collapses. For example, take the fifth point, the perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved. If God predestines us for salvation and God can't make mistakes, then it stands to reason that once God initiates someone's salvation, God will see it through to the end. Now, if you were to ask a knowledgeable Catholic, are we saved by predestination or free will, they would say yes. And pressing them a little further, you might ask, well, which is it? And they might say both. And if you press them even further to tell you what percentage of salvation is initiated by God and what percentage is our free will, they'll likely respond by saying, it's a mystery. Or take, for example, the five solas of the Protestant reformer, sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, and soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. 
There is this desire to parse out salvation by saying that we are justified by faith alone. Yet when we read passages such as Hebrews 11, we see that there is a combination, this collaboration, this interworking between faith, grace, and action. If you were to ask a knowledgeable Protestant how one's works factor into salvation, they would say, a person who is saved will naturally produce good works. It's not that their good works save them, but it's a necessary reaction caused by their salvation. A knowledgeable Catholic would say the very same. But where Catholics and Protestants differ is on the language, something I talked about way back in episode two. Protestants want to use this word sola or alone, whereas Catholicism finds it more appropriate to talk about grace, faith, and works as a mysterious dance between God and humans. Think about it in terms of the Annunciation. When we think about the timing of Jesus' incarnation, we can't help but see how Mary was chosen to be the God-bearer long before her birth. However, we also see that the Virgin Mary gives her consent to being the mother of the Messiah. I remember listening to R.C. Sproul, a prominent Calvinist theologian, who posed the question, what if Mary said no? It's a very Protestant thing to ask these what-if questions, whereas a Catholic is much more comfortable relishing in the mystery of it all, knowing that we will truly never fully understand. I remember this time when I was a Protestant pastor talking to my Catholic friend Martin about the Eucharist. I said, but how do you know that the bread and wine transform into the real presence of Jesus? His response to me was simply one word, faith. That seemed wholly inadequate to me, like a cop-out response. I wanted a thorough explanation of the mechanics. But now that I am Catholic, I understand Martin's perspective. He was comfortable with a mystery, whereas I was not. In the last episode, we talked about faith-seeking understanding. I mentioned the story of a little boy who ran into the church, stood in front of the tabernacle, and showed Jesus his new basketball. He fully accepted the Catholic understanding of the Eucharist, even though he probably couldn't give the slightest explanation of its theological mechanics. Now, as he matures, he should seek to understand the doctrine and apostolic tradition about the Eucharist, but he will never be able to fully understand it because it will always remain a mystery. Thus, when it comes to mysteries, there's always a need for faith. One of my RCIA students asked me why Jesus doesn't just do more miracles to convince everyone of the truth. Why doesn't he just come and reveal himself in a way that eliminates all of the uncertainties? I responded by asking, would it make a difference? Listen to this passage in Matthew 11, quote, Then Jesus began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum. Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. End quote. 
Jesus had done all of these miracles, yet people still didn't believe. For those who think they should be able to understand without a need for faith, they will never believe. Anyone can convince themselves that there's just not enough evidence to warrant faith. In the last episode, we examined Mark 9 with the father of the demon-possessed child. He said to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. He didn't say, I need you to explain everything before I'll trust my son to you. No, he said, here's my son, I trust you, help me understand. I was telling a relative of mine about Eucharistic miracles, and he said, come on, you were a Protestant. How would you have reacted if someone tried to tell you that the bread and wine literally become flesh and blood? I realized then that he would likely remain a skeptic. Maybe he would research it and come to believe, or maybe he wouldn't bother researching it because he was determined not to believe. Eucharistic miracles didn't factor into my process of believing in the Eucharist. In fact, I didn't learn about them until after I believed in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. But because I already had faith in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, Eucharistic miracles furthered my understanding and appreciation for the mystery of the Eucharist. Let's talk about two other words associated with the word mystery, mystical and mystic. Paragraph 2014 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church states, quote, Spiritual progress tends toward ever more intimate union with Christ. This union is called mystical because it participates in the mystery of Christ through the sacraments, the holy mysteries, and in him in the mystery of the Holy Trinity, end quote. In other words, the term mystical refers to the mysterious injection of heaven into earth. We have a mystical union with Christ because Christ, and really all of heaven, opens up to us in this mysterious way through the sacraments. Going way back to episode 5, I talked about the sacraments as this portal between heaven and earth, liken it to the wardrobe that led Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy into Narnia. So when you hear a priest say something like our mystical union with Jesus, think about it in terms of this injection of the spiritual world into our lives in a mysterious way. We are connected with the Trinity and the saints through God's mystical interaction with us. The other word I want to touch on is mystic. Paragraph 2014 of the Catechism continues by saying, quote, God calls us all to this intimate union with him, even if the special graces or extraordinary signs of this mystical life are granted only to some for the sake of manifesting the gratuitous gift given to all, end quote. A mystic is one who experiences an extraordinary injection of the mysterious. All of us Christians have a mystical union with God. Some people, for whatever reason, experience a hyper-injection of the mystical that manifests itself in extraordinary ways. For example, there have been a number of people who have received the stigmata, the wounds of Christ. They mysteriously one day have wounds on their hands and or their feet, and maybe even wounds on their forehead or their side. I've linked in the show notes to a video of this. Other examples include experiencing visions, visitations, and other phenomena. I've linked to a list of mystic saints throughout history, but perhaps the two most recent and most famous include St. Faustina and St. Padre Pio. For whatever reason, God chose to manifest his mystical union with them in extraordinary ways. It's interesting that one of the criticisms that Catholics levied against the Protestant reformers was that they lacked miracles. In Catholicism, the miraculous was a given. They didn't believe that God would always perform miracles, but they understood that if the mystical union means a connection between heaven and earth, then we might at times expect to see extraordinary phenomena occur. 
In John Calvin's prefatory address to the King of France, which I've linked to in the show notes, he justifies the lack of the miraculous among Protestants by suggesting that these so-called miracles are actually illusions performed by Satan to deceive Catholics. In my time as a Protestant, I've heard all sorts of perspectives, like cessationism, which says God doesn't do miracles today, they were limited to biblical times, and I've heard many claim, like John Calvin, that certain miracles, particularly apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary, are satanic deceptions. All that to say, miracles typically don't convince skeptics, because skeptics are searching for reasons not to believe, rather than to believe. Some might ironically call Catholicism hocus-pocus, and in a sense it is. That makes some people uncomfortable, as though Catholicism lacks rationality. But the myth, the fantasy, the strange, the mystery, that is what makes Catholic Christianity. People rush to Jesus not to fix the ordinary, but to inject the extraordinary into the ordinary, to open blind eyes and heal paralysis, raise up the dead, and break the bondage of sin. In Myth Becomes Fact, C.S. Lewis writes, quote, We must not be ashamed of the mystical radiance resting on our theology. We must not be nervous about parallels in pagan Christ. They ought to be there. It would be a stumbling block if they weren't. We must not, in false spirituality, withhold our imaginative welcome. If God chooses to be mythopoeic, and is not the sky itself a myth, shall we refuse to be mythopathic? For this is the marriage of heaven and earth, perfect myth and perfect fact, claiming not only our love and our obedience, but also our wonder and delight, addressed to the savage, the child, and the poet in each one of us, no less than to the moralist, the scholar, and the philosopher. End quote. We will find God in a systematic theology, but we must never let the order theology blind us to the poetry. God is a God of order, but he is also a God of wildness. We might think of God like we think of the painter Bob Ross. He has the precision to paint perfect trees while also ordaining them with personification and poetry. They are not just trees, they are happy trees. Embracing Catholicism is embracing mystery. Rather than minimizing that portal between heaven and earth, we maximize it and imagine we have no capability to understand the limits of how God can bring heaven to earth. All we can say, like the father of the demon-possessed son, is to tell Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it. And patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.